You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. This episode was recorded live in the WNHH studios in New Haven, Connecticut. Today's show falls on the heels of the 75th anniversary of the most successful revolt from a Nazi death camp, the escape from Sobibor, which took place on October 14, 1943. For me, this story is intensely personal, as my grandparents, Selma Weinberg Engel and Haim Engel, were part of this uprising and survived the escape. This history has had a profound impact on my life and has fueled the way I view the world, interact with people, and fight for social justice and liberation for all peoples. Last week, I was invited by the Polish government to represent my family at a ceremony at the Sobibor site. In light of the recent passage of a law in Poland, making it illegal to accuse the Polish nation of complicity in the Holocaust, it seemed particularly important to show up and let people know that we, the family of victims and survivors, are paying close attention. This was not my first trip to Poland or to Sobibor, but it was powerful and it gave me a lot to think about especially in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, ongoing liberation work for black and brown peoples, and the fight to end mass incarceration in the United States. This week also happens to be my 19th wedding anniversary to my husband, Anru Hafkenny, And I thought, who better to join me in conversation about this topic than him? Anru is a healer, African Yoruba priest and therapist through his practice, Healing and Liberation Counseling. He has more than a decade of experience working with people on healing from intergenerational trauma and connecting with ancestral wisdom. As my partner in life, he also knows both of my grandparents and the complexity of the story well, so I'm grateful that he agreed to join me on air today. Hi, sweetie. Thank you for joining (laughs) me. Hi, sweetie. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. So I'm really honored that you're joining me to have this conversation because I thought you could ask me questions that, that probably other people couldn't ask me. So where do you want to start? Yes. Um, <clears throat> and I'm also really honored to, to be here and to see you in and experience you um, in this way as a producer and story gatherer. So I'm really happy to be able to help you um, tell some of your story. because That's a really important piece that the people who are listening, I think, really um, deserve to know and would be really important for them to know. Thanks. So first, um, I know you've told some of the story before, um, but for those who don't know really the story of your Oma and Opa, your uh, grandma and grandpa, what is it? What happened? So um, during World War II, uh, my grandmother was from Holland and my grandfather from Poland, and um, they're both Jewish. And my grandmother uh, went into hiding. Most of her family, her mother and brothers, were sent to Auschwitz and were killed there, but she was in hiding, and so didn't get captured as early as they did. She eventually was found and was deported to the death camp Sobibor. Um, And that camp is in eastern Poland, almost all the way in Ukraine. And it was purely an extermination camp, not a work camp. It was solely there for the purpose of of killing people. Um, And my grandfather was from Poland, from Lotz or Wuch, and uh, his mother died before the war, and he and his brother and his father were sent also to Sobibor about six months before my grandmother got there. So because my grandfather was like a 20-year-old, healthy, strong, strong young man, he was selected to be one of the few people who survived and a worker in the camp to kind of 
keep the camp running, um, sorting through clothes and um, the things that needed to be done to, to, to make the camp function. And everyone else who arrived was, was sent to death. And about six months after he had been there, my grandmother arrived. Um, and originally, I think they asked if, uh, some, if anyone was sick, and she got in the line for people who were sick, but she was very beautiful. And one of the guards actually told her, no, go stand over mm. here and, and kept her, saved her life, basically. So she uh, also was selected as a young, I think she was maybe 18 at this point, mm. and um, was selected to, to live. And um, so they were in this camp and they they were the guards. I think at this point, the Ukrainian guards did things to make the Jews um, entertain the SS Nazi soldiers. And so they um, forced the Jews to dance as entertainment for this for the guards to watch. And they made my grandparents dance together. And mm-hmm. that's how they met each other in the camp. Um, Shortly after my grandmother was captured and sent there, there was a group of um, Russian soldiers who were also captured, who were not Jewish, but they were prisoners of war who were brought there. And they, together with some of the Jews who were already in the camp, who had been starting to plan some, trying to find some way to get out of the camp, planned a revolt and an uprising. And so my um, grandfather at the last minute ended up being part of that um revolt. And I've told the story before on the site. People can look at um, past uh, past post uh, a podcast on the site. But the Jews, together with the Russian soldiers, um, orchestrated a um, a plan where they basically cut the the power lines and the phone lines right before the plan went into action so that the guards couldn't call for backups. And then they bribed the different guards to come to like the metal shop or the wood shop or different places to get um, kind of like gifts or things that they weren't Mm -hmm. really supposed to get a new pair of boots or things like that. And then when each of those guards came in and came off duty where they were supposed to be and came in, somebody was waiting there to kill them. Mm -hmm. And so they killed a whole bunch of the guards all at once. And my grandfather at the last minute, somebody got scared and didn't want to do it. And, my grandfather um, and grandmother, she encouraged him and he agreed to be one of the people who would kill one of the guards. Um, And so he ended up killing one of the guards and then together with my grandmother um, and a bunch of of the other people, they um, all, I think they came together for roll call as they were called at a certain time for roll call out in like a courtyard. And then everybody just ran through the multiple layers of barbed wire fence and out into the fields to try to get into the forest. Mm-hmm. So 300 people escaped, like ran out of the camp. Some went out of the main gate, but the camp was surrounded by minefields. Mm. And so a lot of people died running through the minefields. And then some people were recaptured and then killed by the guards that were still alive. And then a number of people died in the days that followed being in the woods. Um, my grandparents ended up um, being, staying together and the other Polish people who um, who escaped, there weren't very many Dutch people like my grandmother there. The other Polish people wouldn't allow them to stay with them in the woods because my grandmother spoke Dutch. She was a threat to them. If anyone heard her speaking Dutch at that point, they would have known that she was Jewish or that she shouldn't be there. And so it would give them right. away. They couldn't hide as easily. And they threatened my grandparents like that they would kill them if they tried to go with them. So my grandparents then continued to run and hide on their own and eventually found a um, someone on the side of the road who took them to a barn 
um, of his brother that was way off the road. Um, and they spent nine months hiding in a hayloft of a barn um, until, uh, I don't remember the exact date, but nine months later, the Russians um, liberated that area of Poland. And then the war was over in that part. And that started a journey for them of trying to get out of Poland um, I think they were in Russia for a short time and then eventually to go to Holland where my grandmother was from and reunite. Um, her brother had also survived the war in hiding. And so um, they eventually went there, then to Israel and then mm. to America when my mom was born right after the war. And so uh, they came to Israel. I mean, they came to America when my mom was about 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. So the late 50s. Wow. Um, I mean, I've heard this story I mean, this is actually a part of um our family right mm -hmm. this is really our family story as well um something that was really striking about you telling it now was so this planning right is kind of done with people right so here's a kind of a community of people planning to escape and then when that's successful they're actually isolated from other people who had escaped right mm -hmm. and really kind of pushed off on their own because of your uh, Oma's identity, right? Because she couldn't kind of um, hide because of her language. And then being hid and kind of finally making their way to the United States through some connection um, in Israel, but also through some hardship in, in Holland yeah. um, beforehand. Um, but before we kind of get into kind of that aspect of it, you know, as a, as a story, um, as a, um, a life experience um, that you're Oma and Opa lived through. Um, they also didn't kind of sit on this story themselves. And so I wonder how did it impact you kind of hearing this story, not just them telling you this story, but kind of witnessing the way that they really shared this experience with other people, yeah. students, other people. Yeah, in the world. Sure. How did that impact you um, as a young person and in your development of like who you are and how you see justice and liberation? Yeah. Yeah. Part of why I wanted you to be here today is to talk about that because it's really been, I've been thinking a lot about how this story really affects my, the way I am in the world. Um, so when I was like around 10 or 11 or so, um, there was a book that came out in America called The Escape from Sobibor, mm -hmm. called Escape from Sobibor and a TV movie, like a big ABC TV movie mm -hmm. called Escape from Sobibor. And so my grandparents were like on Good Morning America and mm -hmm. it was like a really big deal. And and that happened sort of just as I was entering into like preteen time. And so I, even though I knew that my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, I don't think it was until then and then into my teen years that I started hearing like all these, a lot more details about it. And because it was really becoming this very big public story. And so they really felt it was their mission to go around and tell people this story because mm -hmm. the idea that we don't want people to forget about what happened. Um, mm -hmm. And so they started going to schools. They would ask school teachers who invited them to have students watch this movie, Escape from Sobibor. People can find it on YouTube and other online places. And then they would come in and they would each tell the story from their perspective. So my mm -hmm. grandfather would tell it in his way, my grandmother in her way, and then they would take questions from people. And so I grew up, so I, um, they used to come to my school and I'd heard them go to other schools and I would talk with them about this pretty openly. And as the second generation, like my mom and her brother didn't want to talk with them about it. But mm. for me, it wasn't my personal experience. Like I didn't live with them in the year after right. all this happened. It was many, many years later. And so it didn't affect me as, it wasn't as difficult for me to hear the story. So in terms of how it affected me, I think that, um, well, first of all, I didn't grow up 
being religiously Jewish at all. I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, and in a very multiracial environment. Um, I had a few friends who were Jewish, but nobody was religious. And mm -hmm. the only exposure I had to religious Jewish people were people who were very conservative, um, just a couple of people who happened to be in public school, but they were like more politically, conservative, politically, not conservative, religiously conservative, politically conservative. Right. And so I didn't really know. My, I mean, they were orthodox or in that direction, but mm -hmm. it was less about that and more that like politically and socially, I couldn't relate to them. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, my connection to Judaism was through culture and through the story of the Holocaust, not through religion mm -hmm. or any of these things. And so, and then I just was very aware of like the resiliency of people that people can go through this horror and then go on to have a life where they like live and have children and, that just amazed me, like knowing the details of what my grandparents went through. And then eventually, after many years of struggling here financially, but eventually they like bought a house and, you know, had a business and and had sort of a, a middle class life mm -hmm. here. And so my experience of them was like loving grandparents. And so that was very striking to me. Um, but for me, growing up in this like very not Jewish community, very kind of multiracial New Haven community, I was always paying attention to other people who had also gone through genocide or other people who were more recent refugees and and kind of thinking about the parallels between my own family story and the those similar stories of people in my day-to-day -day mm -hmm. community. And so I think that it it's really affected my outlook in mm. that way. So from hearing this story and living with your with your grandpa spending a lot of time with your grandparents, um you were then able to see the lives of people around you in ways that there was also oppression happening, right? And so I think what's amazing is that right, you were able to kind of take this very specific um, experience, not just um, that's been experienced by Jewish people, but specifically the stories of your grandparents and actually broaden that to actually feel a lot of compassion and care, not just kind of for other people who are suffering, but like, oh, look, here are my grandparents who fought for their freedom, literally, and like, oh, look, here are some other people who are struggling. Let's also find ways to really continue to, to fight and to struggle for freedom. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I remember saying things to them about like black liberation movements and, and my grandma would have this reaction about like Malcolm X and, and I couldn't understand how they couldn't see the parallels between black liberation and liberation of Jewish people. And then I remember one day talking to her more about it because I would get very reactive as a teenager, like, how do you not see this? And and I would talk to her as a teenager. And then I remember her telling me the story that when they came, it was only a few years later that the Black Panther Party was on television and she saw pictures of people in the street with guns. And like it was very militant and it was very triggering for her mm -hmm. as like things that were similar imagery for her about the Holocaust um, and that she had this real uh, aversion and concern about anything that seemed like too extreme to her in any, like it was always don't be too Jewish, like be Jewish, but not too Jewish and, mm -hmm. you know, be active, but don't be too extreme. And so I think like she really wasn't able to see that movement as a liberation movement mm -hmm. in the same kind of way right. because she just was so close to that trauma that she couldn't see that. But I saw that and continue to see that. Well, it makes sense in terms of imagery, right? So there's both uh, ways that, Black liberation, liberation of people, it gets portrayed. Yeah. Um, but also even in just in terms of imagery where in Europe, um, people kind of wearing similar clothes, staying in a very militaristic way, chanting things, 
right? There's there's a kind of an overlap of imagery, even though they're really talking about different things. Mm-hmm. And so right. it, it makes sense, especially in terms of like a trauma response, like seeing these images that are triggered. So she actually can't be present. Or they couldn't be present with what is actually happening. What's the story here that's different than what was happening over there? It's, they start to overlay and they start to blur yeah. together. And I think that that exists in the Jewish community a lot. Like I look at the way there's this sense of self-preservation in a lot of the politics and actions within the Jewish community. And I often really think of it as a trauma response mm-hmm. and that there isn't always this ability to look at the liberation of all people and that it becomes this act of like we, that, you know, we keep being persecuted over generations and generations and we have to take care of our own. I mean, mm-hmm. that's why Israel was created. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, and so um, I just think that for me, I try to really look at the core of it, which is I believe that like all people should be free. All mm-hmm. people should have vibrant lives. All communities should be supported mm-hmm. and not um, that the lesson for me coming out of the Jewish Holocaust is not the preservation of Jewish people. It is the preservation of all people and not turning oppression onto, mm-hmm. not taking our survival and turning oppression onto others. Right. So, I mean, I think it's powerful, this, this piece around preservation, right. And, and, and danger. So like in, in terms of trauma, there's a difference between hypervigilance and vigilance. Like vigilance is like, Oh, look, there's danger. And I recognize it. Hypervigilance is the perception of danger when there's actually no danger. Mm. Um, and, not only, so it's not that it's wrong to be safe, but when that turns into um, not just a perception of danger, so I'm going to respond to that, but actually then actively kind of fighting and oppressing somebody else, right? Like, well, this is kind of my turn and I'm the one that has to make sure I'm kind of uh, preserved and on top. And then that can even lead, um, if you're not actually paying attention to and have hold these values, it can turn into really causing other people suffering for the sake the perception of the sake of your own safety, mm-hmm. um, even though kind of a country or a state like Israel or any country has at its disposal massive resources versus other people. Yeah. So regardless, but I, I want to be the, careful not to say that that there's a perception of danger when there isn't danger because no. anti-Semitism <clears throat> still very clearly exists. Very real. But I think putting it in the context of like many Jewish people also have a lot of white privilege and a lot of financial privilege and other things, and so that is different than, than, you know, and so anyway, that's a more, a little bit more Mm -hmm. complex story, but I, you know, part of why this came up right now is because very last minute, a couple weeks ago, I was invited by the Polish government or our family was invited Mm -hmm. to go to Poland to honor the 75th anniversary of this revolt from Sobibor. And so we struggled for the few weeks uh, Mm -hmm. that we knew about this to figure out if, if somebody should go. And I felt pretty strongly, even though it was really difficult to leave all of a sudden like that, um, that I really needed to go. And one of the things that really motivated me to go to this, aside from my commitment to, to acknowledging the story and remembering the story, is the fact that this past year, the Polish government passed a law that said that it was illegal to implicate the Polish government in the crimes of the Holocaust, mm. that you couldn't say that it was the fault of the Polish government. Mm. Now, it's tricky because Poland was occupied by Germany at the time, so it isn't as clear as, like, the Germans were direct perpetrators mm-hmm. and the Polish people were complicit in a lot of ways, but were also occupied, and so there's, it's not as clear. But um, many of these death camps and concentration camps are in Poland and um, right where people live, you know, mm-hmm. like right outside of a city or on the edge of a city. And so this trip was really powerful, and I really wanted to... Um, talk with you in particular mm-hmm. about 
some of the things that I noticed and thought about oh, on this trip. What stood out? Um, so one of the things is that this, so this, uh, the site where Sobibor is for, for a very, very long time just had this one monument and like a circle with ashes on it. And I think a little, a few years ago, they, they built like a really tiny little uh, building that had a few more bits of information, but there really wasn't much there. The Nazis after the war wanted to hide this camp because it was a, they wanted to hide what camp. happened there. It was straight up a death camp, not like, uh, the concentration camps for some reason they didn't think were as horrible, but they were. Mm. So when, when the war was over, they actually, or as the war was ending, they actually tore it down, buried things, planted trees over the whole Mm. space. So you couldn't see things. Many of the other concentration camps or death camps, the buildings were left standing or many of the buildings were. So you can still see like the whole area Mm. where it was and see many of the actual buildings. So part of what happened um, with this gathering in Poland is that, a number of five different governments have been trying to work together to build a museum on this site and trying to come to agreement on what is this new memorial, new museum, mm-hmm. and what's it going to look like. And so this event, there was like ambassadors from five, from Slovakia, from Poland, from Israel, from Germany, from, from a whole bunch of different countries. Mm-hmm. And it was like a very high level governmental thing and each government is contributing millions of dollars to create this this museum mm-hmm. and memorial and this is one of like a dozen right there's like mm-hmm. Auschwitz and Birkenau and Treblinka and all these at Madanek and other places that already exist that a lot of people come from other countries to visit and so what was really striking to me um because of that and like the number of things that exist actually what, yeah. so what you're saying is that um because this is really striking and want to touch base on it later is that today right these actually become sites that are kind of put into like a system and like oh look here's a place to come to see what was done to honor those who've been killed yeah. and murdered and oppressed to learn from right and just, see the truth see of the, the truth genocide of yeah. that happened here and understand like what how these things come about right. It was so striking when coming from America and being someone who does anti-racism work and does community building work and is so aware of the lack of true history that is told about African genocide and slavery or the slavery of and genocide of African peoples and the genocide of Native American peoples and the colonization of Puerto Rico and, the, you know, like so mm-hmm. many different places mm-hmm. in that are related to the United States history. And how little awareness there is, how little true history is taught, how little money is put towards remembering those things or even acknowledging that we need to do that, how few groups there are that commit themselves to, to doing this work. How, right. Like we just got a museum built in the past year or year and a half to honor African-American people in this museum, in this country who built this country mm-hmm. on for slave labor. Right. Like it is just striking the difference between that um, and, and the role that Holocaust studies has in our curriculums. So how many kids in America read the diary of Anne Frank? Right. What narratives do we read about aside from like Martin Luther King in February mm-hmm. or maybe Rosa Parks or something like mm-hmm. how many, how many kids read like an actual narrative and, and really dig into the complexity of history around slavery, right. around native genocide and so it was so striking to me this time. I, I mean, I think I've always been aware of this and thought mm-hmm. of it, but 
the number of experiences I had in my three or four days in Poland that reinforced that to me mm-hmm. uh, was just striking. Share a little bit about the the group, the German yeah. group. Yeah, so um, one thing that happened when I went to go on this trip is all of a sudden all these people started contacting me, like families of other survivors or um, very often people will come from other countries to interview our family. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandma is still alive, but not so lucid anymore. Mm-hmm. But up until like a year ago, people were still coming. We would allow them to come and interview her. And so all of a sudden I was getting contacted by all these people who had done or were still doing research on Sobibor. There's a lot of archeological research and things happening. So this one group who had come and done some really amazing research and, and they'd come here to interview us. I had planned to connect with them. They were going to be at the memorial in Sobibor as well. And I have a hard time with the name. I think it's pronounced Bildungswerk. And it's named after a man who um, was a Holocaust survivor. And he's a German Holocaust survivor. And what this group is, is a group of German people, non-Jewish German people. Many of them are descendants of Nazi SS soldiers. Mm. And they have made it their life's work. Most of it is volunteer work, but it is their passion to actually really learn about the details of what happened during the war, Mm -hmm. all the details of what happened and how something like the Jewish Holocaust comes to to be. And they bring groups from Germany to Poland to visit these camps. And they do this very interactive way of helping people to understand the history, to kind of bring the narratives to life. So they have large printouts of photographs and they have narratives like some people who survived then then told their stories right after the war so they'll read some of those like someone telling about what it was like as a child to be rounded up um and what they were struggling with do we go do we not go um what happened how they were then transported and forced onto the trains and then they bring people to those sites so Mm. you'll stand in the site Mm. we stood on a soccer field outside of a school, which was the place of the largest deportation. It was like thousands and thousands of, of people and mostly children were deported on this one day. It's a town called Vlodava near Sobibor. And most of the Jews who went through there went um, to Sobibor. There was 12,000 Jews that went through there to go to, that were sent to Sobibor. And the town had 10,000 people. 7,000 of them were Jews. All but 142 were killed. So can you imagine like that many people mm. in a town and how that happens that the town is right. taken over and allows 7,000, like, you know, three quarters right. of their residents to be shipped off on a train to be killed. And right. then you could literally smell bodies burning. Like mm. even though it was very secret, people knew like it was not that right. secret. So right. this group takes people and, and kind of gets them really immersed in the history in this more personal way by bringing them to sites and then also reading narratives and showing pictures. And then they do this for a few days, but they really spend time through the day kind of processing it with people and, and hearing how it's affecting people, what questions people have. And I was just like blown away by, first of all, the amount of information these people had was just unbelievable. The amount of facts that they knew. And secondly, the fact that this was what they had committed themselves to. And I couldn't Mm -hmm. think of like anything like this that really exists Mm -hmm. to that scope here in America. One of these people actually works for like a huge football team, a soccer team. And so there they have like a football club. So they have like 150,000 members and he does anti-racist work currently around um, racism, around Mm. racism towards immigrants, towards black and brown people in 
um, in Germany, but he also um, takes people from the football team, like 18 and mm. older, from the football fan club, basically, mm. and takes them on these trips. So then he's wow. also, he's doing this Holocaust remembrance work, but he's also looking at what is like group think, mm. you know, like a yeah. lot of like racism and, and, and this kind of stuff right. gets perpetrated within sports. And so he then also translates it within that. And it was just so striking. I was like, what if this existed in America? Right. What if right. like white people here, I don't happen to be a white person whose family um, was participated in slavery in this country, but I don't know if way back when my descendants were, my ancestors were participating in slavery in mm -hmm. South Africa or in some other right. place. Right? right. Like, so, but what if like someone whose family owned a plantation, like was committed to like learning and teaching the history, right. the true history of what happens there as a part of making amends? Well, I think, this one piece is not only about whose ancestors kind of directly harmed someone else. Right. Um, True. Because this piece around Poland is a country of people who also suffered and who are bystanders. Right. So, you know, in looking at um, kind of violence being perpetrated, you also have people, and not just there, but in so many places, kind of, I can't do anything or whatever the, the narrative or their experience is, but still being a witness to it. Mm -hmm. And the both the suffering that that is and the collusion that is also there. I mean, I, I traveled with you um, to Holland and to Amsterdam when, when your family was honored. And I was also struck by, wow, the disconnect in this country, right? So here um, with Judaism and with the Holocaust, there's all this like, never forget, this will never right. happen again, right? And there's a way that that's, even though anti-Semitism is on the rise and it's not as normative and kind of normal and mainstream here as it really should be, um, it's far more normal and a part of remembering here than people trying to actively remember the genocide of indigenous people, eugenics programs that have gone on in this country up until the 70s, um, you know, forced sterilization of, of people of color, of poor people, of mentally ill people. In this country, policies which Hitler documents as inspiring him and providing models right. of, of what he did right. um, during the Holocaust. And that is a clear forgetting that is actually active in this country. And I was struck by the kind of normative nature of kind of what was in, what was going on in Amsterdam, these stumbling stones of places where people lived and markers to show like, these are the people who lived here, who had lives here, regular people. Mm -hmm. Didn't have to be some huge hero or heroine, but like these are like regular people in their lives which have been erased and the the real disconnect. So there's one which is like the kind of suffering of like, look what's not happening here, but also actually kind of inspiration and power. Like, wow, look at what can happen. Mm -hmm. Look at the ways that we can heal and not just as victims or receivers of suffering, um, but also bystanders and also uh, perpetrators of that because it actually dehumanizes everybody. Right. Um, and so... In, in I mean, I, I really appreciate the ways that you've, one way of looking at this is kind of through this trauma lens, is that when we get hurt physically, we, you know, if it hasn't healed well, we have to go back in and like scrub the wound or open it up. You know, go to a doctor, it has to open it up. Sometimes like if a leg hasn't set properly, they re-break it. So there's pain involved in that, but it's pain in service of helping it to heal a ways in a way that it didn't get a chance to heal before. Mm -hmm. um, and that's such a not just a powerful thing that exists, yeah. but is such a source of um, kind of remembered possibility of what can happen here. But it requires really looking 
and really right. feeling, right. which, you know, this, this country and the society doesn't really have a good track record at like, let's like sit in this discomfort and let's like be with the sorrow and the grief yeah. and then move through that or the rage, right. And, and find ways of actually dealing with that in a way that's along healing as opposed to being reactive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I really noticed when I was in Poland as well is the difference between the experience I had in Holland, where there was this real attempt, this was in 2010 and then again in 2017, where there was this real attempt to own up to the the harm that they had done and trying to um, apologize in certain ways and kind of be very thoughtful about the way that they acknowledge the survivors and, and tried to make amends and, you know, make reparations in mm-hmm. some way. Right. Um, and the difference between that and then going to Poland and how I think Poland has really struggled to deal with this legacy there mm-hmm. in a very different way. I mean, first of all, they were occupied until like the mid eighties. So they've only been, you know, when I first went in 1996, they had That's not new. even been like 10 years out of occupation and there was, you know, it was very new. And, and so I think, it makes sense that they're starting to deal with these things like later than Mm -hmm. other countries, but also they have this combination of being victims and perpetrators, you know? And so that's not as clear as Germany, who's just straight up perpetrators. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. that's, um, I think that's difficult for Mm -hmm. them to deal with. But, you know, one of the things that was very clear to me in 1996 was I saw anti-Semitic graffiti all over the place, like Jewish Mm -hmm. stars on hangman's nooses and things like that in Poland, in like college towns, like in not, not way in the boondocks, right? Like mm-hmm. right in a young, a town that's like filled with young people and modern things. Mm-hmm. A town that has a concentration camp that is massive right on the edge of town. There's literally like, there's a gate, like a wire gate, more like a chain link type fence mm-hmm. and houses right on the other side. Mm-hmm. And there's the barracks from the concentration camp right there. They're like in their backyard. Right. And this is not way off in the middle of nowhere. This is right. on the edge of like a city. Right. So right literally there. someone and can be in their backyard and, and look yes. into the concentration yeah. camp. And in that same town, there is there is still anti-Semitism going on. So when I was there this time, mm-hmm. I'm always aware of that. But when I was there this time, I was having a meeting with someone from the museum, the person who's going to be putting together the exhibit that eventually will live in this new museum. And right outside the cafe, in the center of this very modern downtown area of the city, there was a huge neo-Nazi fascist, like right-wing fascist demonstration of people like there was police in riot gear throwing pepper spray at them. They were protesting a gay pride parade that was mm. happening. And there were hundreds and hundreds of people with like pro fascism shirts on mm. mostly young white men with their fists raised in the air. Like it was scary mm. and it was real. Like it, yeah. you know, now they weren't saying like anti-Jewish things right. or anti-black things, but they, right. you know, I don't doubt that that is also what right. they believe. Right. And it was striking it when was you told striking. me um, the person you were with said that a few years ago this it, this actually may not have happened. No, he said absolutely right. not. Like he said they usually went with their kid, with his kid to the pride parades and stuff. And he said, you know, two years ago, I think they, they had a very right wing government that's come into power. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of undoing of some of the democratic processes there fascists coming into power and so mm. um the climate you know in some similar ways as things where people white supremacists in the united states feel feel right. they have more, more permission yeah. um to stand up and and say racist things it's kind of a similar right. similar thing there well not just stand up but to be visible in a way that they haven't been visible right. Right, in right. a long time that's what i mean yeah. yeah yeah um which which 
I mean, again, speaks of this kind of visibility piece. So you would talk to them about like some of the differences or what you would like to see. So like things around Judaism and the Holocaust being really visible here. So what, what else um, kind of helped you to kind of not just hold on to like, well, I just care about Jewish liberation mm-hmm. and really expand that to kind of oppressed people and looking at that that's actually important is kind of undoing that versus just like kind of my people, my flag. That's all that matters. Well, I didn't feel like the Jewish people were my only people. I never, ever mm. felt that. In fact, I didn't really feel part of the Jewish people in a lot of ways as a young person. I mean, I think I identified like culturally as Jewish, but my people were all different kinds of people. Mm. They were like artists and activists and creative people and um, of all different races and cultures. And mm. that's who I thought my people mm. were. So what's changed? Like what, what changed? Because I know now there's that which is still there and like you really see Jewish people and right. Jewish traditions as really kind of integrated in a part of who you are. So right. what was that shift? Yeah. So I think, you know, as a young person, um, I, I think because I didn't have ritual and religion in my life and I was a kid who wanted that kind of meaning, mm. I was searching for that always. Like I would build these little altars or I would make like special little necklaces or things and just really be looking for like the sacred mm. in life and mm-hmm. like in ritual because it just wasn't in my life and it was something I wanted. And so I danced a lot as a kid and I happened to get involved in West African dance as like an eight-year-old and got really mm-hmm. um, seriously into doing West African dance and then later in college moved to New York City and was doing capoeira and Afro-Brazilian martial art and then doing like Afro-Cuban Orisha dancing. And so just through my like dance life, I started really getting exposed to the Orisha tradition, the Yoruba Mm -hmm. tradition, and started to really um, find meaning in that. I was living in Brooklyn. It was like the early 90s. There was African and Afrocentric bookstores where I could find all these cool Mm -hmm. books about Mm -hmm. all this stuff. And it just resonated for me. It was an earth-based mm-hmm. tradition. Like a lot of the, a lot of the root of it really made a lot of sense to me. But by the time I got out of college and I had at that point gotten a lot more aware of like talking about and thinking about race politics mm-hmm. in kind of a more intellectual way and not just in the way we did in New Haven, just like on the street or at school, mm-hmm. I started to realize like, it's sort of weird that I know so much about these other cultures and now I speak Portuguese and I speak some Yoruba and I know about all these other pieces of this religion and dance, but I don't know that about my own people. Mm-hmm. And so I went on this roots trip basically and, and I saved up money, slept on people's couches and saved up money for a bunch of time and then went on a trip to Poland and Germany and Holland and Israel and, and tried to really search out family members who were still alive and, and search out where my grandparents had been I found the people who hid my grandparents after the war. Um, And that process, what I didn't realize was going to happen was that I came to understand that I had a lot of internalized anti-Semitism from growing up here, that these ideas I had about these like sort of politically conservative Jew, like what it meant to be Jewish Mm -hmm. was like not cool and not good. And I didn't have any models for like Jewishness that was also religious that felt like I knew like these radical political communists or other people, mm-hmm. but like I didn't have um, role models or, or understanding of like, how can you be religious and connected to this religion and also like hold the politics that I hold and mm-hmm. um, be spiritual in a way that feels good to me and isn't about like women having to be less than men or be separated from or these things that didn't resonate for me as ways that I wanted to live my life. And so 
it ended up being this multi-month process of learning, being in different Jewish spaces, um, mm -hmm. some in Israel. And I had a ton of political issues with even going to Israel, but I knew that I needed to meet my family there. I needed mm -hmm. to see where my mom grew up. And, and so there was this real um, learning that happened about the roots of all these social justice things I believed in were mm -hmm. actually part of the Torah and part of the Talmud, like Jewish law. Whether they're always put into practice is another <laughs> issue, right? But that when I started learning about those things, I was like, wow, you mean when, when you have a, a, a farm, you're supposed to leave like a percentage of the corner of your farm unharvested so that anyone who's hungry can come and take from mm -hmm. that, right? And there's all these other examples of that about how they tried to um, legislate basically in, mm -hmm. in religious law a lot of these ideas around social justice that I agreed with. And again, it's not everything, but it was this connection that I felt to um, understanding this piece of the tradition that I hadn't previously understood. And then another piece was this idea that you're supposed to question everything. Like when you mm. do Torah study, that you're supposed to question, 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 like even if 10 other people for 3,000 years have interpreted something one way, like keep questioning, keep, keep learning and digging deeper. And those two things were really powerful for me. And so that really shifted for me, this idea that, oh, there is something in this religion mm -hmm. that that I actually feel really connected to. And it felt really important to be rooted in my own tradition and in my own culture and not just be learning about and and involved in other cultures. I didn't have the term appropriation then, mm -hmm. but I think what I was doing was like deepening my my grounding in my own tradition so that I could then participate in and be involved in the Yoruba tradition, the Orisha tradition in a way that wasn't about uh, reacting to something that was lacking in my mm -hmm. life, but that was actually choosing something and respecting this other culture in combination with my own mm -hmm. culture. And I knew when I was having this experience, I sort of said people, I was trying to have conversations with Jewish people about, Oh, look at these parallels between this Orisha tradition and these things I'm learning in Judaism. And they like could not go there. And mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I need to put this aside because these Jewish people can't go there. <laughs> <laughs> there probably are others who can, and I'm going to like wait till I get back to the States to, to reintegrate these things. Cause I, I knew that I didn't want to let go of the Orisha tradition, but it right. wasn't um, as uh, I needed to have both of them. And what is that like for you now? Just both of them. It's great. I mean, then I found you. <laughs> so <laughs> then the universe yeah. provided you who was like yeah. the perfect complement to hold all of those mm. things. We both, we both grew up in these super, more politically progressive. I mean, you as a child of Black Panther Party, a Black Panther father and a mother who was a Communist Party leader and activist and um, both of us growing up without religion, but then being people who really sought um, this connection to the sacred and spiritual and ritual and learning about those things, but not letting go of the social justice outlook or the equity outlook or any of those things um and you also had familiarity with you you know had a friend who was black and jewish growing up and um and and so that wasn't a foreign thing to you and i think we've now had 20 something years of mm -hmm. of living this path together and that's just such such a blessing i'm mm -hmm. so grateful that when i talk about these things like you get all of it you're mm -hmm. not threatened by it and you're just like yeah i get it well well also it's something that we really intentionally looked at Right. You would, right. you would, when we met, you had really just come back from this roots trip and it was like, yes, I want like this deepening in my life of what Judaism is. Um, and so really talking about being a interracial, interfaith, multi-faith family, um, or a couple at that point, um, and really looking at like, well, what does it mean 
you know, for you not being with somebody who's Jewish, what does it mean for me not being someone who's a person of color? And kind of really, I think this beautiful thing is holding like love, holding our hearts, holding what it means to be a person, right? Even as you talk about like justice for people, like for all people, and really having our eyes open to like what the particularities are around oppression, around justice, around anti-Semitism. So it's not just this kind of panacea, like, well, just love and like get all like rainbows and unicorns, which right. are wonderful, but can be blinding, but like really holding both and right. being really clear about kind of what we're doing. And so that was a real intentionality with all of these steps. Yeah, um, absolutely. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, we weren't thinking, oh, we'll figure this out. Like when we have kids or something, it was right from the beginning, something that we worked on. And, right. and I had also been searching for a teacher within the Orisha tradition. So it wasn't that I was only focused on Judaism and the teacher I happened to hear about and be searching for happened to be the teacher who you'd been <laughs> apprenticing with. So I really felt that the universe like, yes. brought us together. But yeah, it, it has been very intentional. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. in what do you want to kind of end, kind of close out today with around kind of the impact of these journeys that you've made, ways that you've looked at real massive kind of interpersonal, intergenerational trauma and suffering as well as kind of systemically and societally and culturally and healing. And like, what do you want to? Yeah. I, you know, I think there's this piece that's so important about a society and a government acknowledging the truth of the history. And there's a Mm -hmm. difference between saying, it's like the difference on an individual of saying like, you're a racist versus we live in a racist society. And so we all manifest racism in different ways or Mm -hmm. as white people that we all manifest Mm -hmm. racism in different ways, whether we mean to or not. Mm -hmm. And as a society, the importance of a government and a society owning up to what it's done and telling the truth of it without feeling like it then condemns them to never do good Mm -hmm. again, or that it then condemns them to whatever they're scared of it condemning them to. And that, we have to do that. Like we cannot just, as you said, like just pretend the wound isn't there and just move on. We have to heal from these things. And there's the, the personal individual healing and there's really a huge importance for governments and societies acknowledging and healing as well. And there's models for, for ways to do it. And so mm-hmm. I think that's really what I want to, people to take away from this. Amen. Shay. Thank you for joining me. Mm, All right. People can check everything out on thetableunderground.com. You can follow us on any podcasting site and there'll be a whole bunch more information and links up on the website. You're listening to The Table Underground and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. Thanks for listening.